If you listen to Christian radio, especially the stations that regularly feature preaching, it's only a matter of time before you hear some preacher going through the book of Revelation. It seems like half the sermons on Christian radio are about Revelation or or the end times. I'm not sure if you've noticed that, but it seems like they're always talking about something about the end. It's not surprising because when it comes to ratings, Revelation and and stuff like that is going to be on top. People love to hear about the end times. It's such a topic of fascination for so many people. They can't get enough teaching on end times, and of course there's plenty out there. For some people, it really grabs their attention. For others, it grips them with fear, but for most people, believe it or not, they actually believe they're living in the end times. Back in 2013, there was a Barner survey that asked this question of just Americans in general. Do you personally believe that the world is currently living in the end times as described by prophecies in the Bible or not? This was asked of Americans in general. And can you just guess how many said yes? It was 41%. Four in ten Americans think we're living in the end times right now. And that number went even higher when it was asked of just Protestants or evangelical Christians. The number rose to 77%. Three in four evangelicals think we're living in the end times right now. That's pretty remarkable. Another interesting poll found that 49% of people believe all the world's disasters that we see have something to do with all of the prophecies in the Bible about the end. And overall, these numbers are, are amazingly high. On the one hand, it's nothing new. Every generation believes they're the last generation. But on the other hand, awareness of end times has really increased in our culture. Since we've entered the nuclear age, we now can actually picture the world ending pretty easily. It just takes a couple of guys to press a couple of red buttons, and it's all over. And we've got earthquakes and famines, disease, solar storms. and There's so many disasters that could come. Thoughts of the end have become a normal part of our culture. Now there's, there's even an entire movie genre given over to it, the apocalyptic genre. People love to speculate now how the world will end. But for most people, that's all it is. It's just speculation. I think the numbers would be far lower if people were asked if they believe the world would end as the Bible predicts. I think the numbers would be even more lower if people were asked, do you even know what the Bible predicts? There's still massive ignorance about what the Bible actually says about the end. People usually believe what they want to believe. But I've encountered very few who actually have a faithful understanding about what the Bible says truly about end times. Even among good and godly Bible-believing Christians, misconceptions abound because it can be such a confusing topic. It's like a spider web of information, and it's so easy to get tangled up in it. There's all these symbols and metaphors, and it can be overwhelming at times. And then you have different people who believe so many different things. It just adds to the confusion, and some Christians just throw their hands up and say, well, why bother? What's the use? What can I get out of studying about the end? And although the end can be challenging, there is a use and there is a point. Jesus told his disciples about it because he wanted them to know, he wanted them to understand, and he wanted them to live accordingly in the meantime. It's no different for us. The Bible contains things revealed, not concealed, for those spiritually minded, for believers. And all scripture is profitable, including prophecy. 
And that brings us to the, the text we have for this morning, which is found in Mark chapter 13. So grab your Bibles once again, and let's go back to the Gospel of Mark, back to chapter 13. Making our way verse by verse through Mark, we're very close to the end, but here we're in chapter 13, which is a very special chapter. It's paralleled more famously in Matthew 24 and 25. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. It gets that name because Jesus gave this message on top of the Mountain of Olives. And there, after a day of controversial teaching in the temple, some of the disciples came up to Jesus and they asked him some questions. In particular, they wanted to know about the end of the age because they're pretty confused. In their mind, that the coming of the Messiah meant that that's it. The age will end. It's all over. And that Israel will be restored to glory. And that's it. But Jesus, right before this, just finished predicting that the temple, which was the centerpiece of Israel's glory, was going to be completely destroyed. And that made no sense to the disciples. They they did not have that one figured out at all. They thought the Messiah was supposed to come, overthrow Israel's enemies, usher in the kingdom, restore Israel to prominence, and then reign and rule righteously from Jerusalem. So what's all this business about the temple being destroyed. He's supposed to deliver Israel, not judge Israel. And we've really hashed this out over the past two weeks. But in short, the disciples are confused because they do not yet have a clear concept of two comings of the Messiah. They don't get that yet. They expect the Messiah to come once for all and the age to end. But Jesus slowly but surely is telling them otherwise. First, The Messiah will come to suffer, to die for his people, to redeem them, to set up a spiritual kingdom. Then he will leave. He will depart for quite some time. The kingdom will not come in its fullness right away, like the disciples expected. It won't be until sometime later that he will come a second time to reign and to rule righteously. But for the moment, the disciples, they do not get all this yet. They're confused. And that spawns their questions, which open the chapter. So, for example, in verse 4, they say, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And the longer version in Matthew 24, verse 3, says they also ask, Tell us, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's what they want to know. When's it going to happen? When's the kingdom going to come in fullness like we expect? Again, like Luke 19.11 says, these guys, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They're starting to figure out, I guess it's not coming quite like we thought, quite as we expected. So they ask these questions and Jesus answers. And he tells them about the coming of the kingdom, about his coming in glory, and about the signs that precede that time. And that is the Olivet Discourse. That's the whole chapter of Mark 13 and Matthew 24, Matthew 25. And for two weeks already, we've been studying what Jesus says here in a big picture sense. We haven't gone in verse by verse yet, just looking overall. In particular, last time, we spent a lot of time clearly establishing that what Jesus says in this discourse pertains to the future. These are things yet to come. Granted, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. That is certainly true, and that was a massively significant event. But that is not yet the end that Jesus describes here in this chapter. There, there is another end, the real end of the age, and it is still to come. 
Now, time doesn't permit us for any more of a recap than that, because today we're ready to finally jump in and go through this passage. Look at all the details of this prophetic picture that Jesus paints. Remember, he tells them and us because he, he wants us to know. This is meant to be understandable to the discerning, to the spiritually minded. And it's our goal now to make our way through this chapter verse by verse so that we may see the things to come and that we too might live accordingly in the meantime. And to start this morning, we'll be tackling verses 5 through 13. This discourse is broken up into different sections, very clear cut. And this is the first one, now that we're ready to, to jump in, this is the first one which Jesus describes as the birth pangs. The birth pangs. And if that's unfamiliar to you, well, let's start by reading the passage together. Mark 5, or rather Mark 13. And let's read verses 5 through 13, since we already covered verses 1 through 4. Mark 13, verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. You read this opening section, this opening passage to the, to the whole message. And what's the basic thrust? Well, basically, don't expect things to get better before the end comes. They're, they're not going to get much better. In fact, they get drastically worse and worse. Even though the gospel goes out to all the world, this world is still hostile enemy territory to God's people. This is not their home. And in the tribulation, they are made to feel that. As the age draws to a close, life will get progressively worse for believers. Hatred toward God will intensify. Persecution toward God's people will explode. And the earth itself will be seemingly torn apart. It really is a time of tribulation. And this is the beginning of the end. After this, starting in verse 14, there's a clear transition highlighted by a key event which Jesus describes as the abomination of desolation. We'll look at that next time. But after that event, things get even worse, much worse, such that Jesus describes that time not as a tribulation, but as a great tribulation. It's a key event that signals the end is rapidly approaching. Remember, the disciples asked Jesus for the signs that precede his coming and the end of the age, and he gave them something quite specific to look for next time. But in general, though, this entire tribulation period can be taken as a sign that the end is near. The end has dawned. Our verses in particular, verses 5 through 13, 
through 13 have a special character as signs. They don't quite signal that the end is here. Rather, they signal the end is near. This is how the end starts. This is the beginning of the end. The beginning of that future time we would call the tribulation, which culminates in the return of Christ. For example, look at verse 7. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. That's not the end. Wars are not a sign that the end has come, that the end is here. Instead, other things must come first. The end is close, to be sure, in the time he's describing, but other things must take place. This is simply how the end begins. Now, I want to point out to you, just so you know, some people take this passage 5 through 13, and they say it doesn't refer to the future tribulation, but to the entire time period between the first coming and the second coming. So the past 2,000 years, that's what Jesus is describing. And why would they say that? Well, because, I mean, look what we just read. He's predicting wars and famine and earthquake and persecution. And and all that stuff has been happening for the past 2,000 years. So it seems like it kind of fits. But the text and the context really make clear that even though these phenomena are not unique to the tribulation, Jesus is referring to a specific future time period with his words, not the whole church age. And for for one, everything that he says here, it's not just been going on for the past 2,000 years. It's been going on for all of human history. Take war, for example. In the 3,400 years of recorded human history, historians can only find 268 years where there was not some recorded war on the globe. Humankind has known war nonstop. It's never ending. The same goes with earthquakes. People see an earthquake and say, oh, here here it is. We're in the end times. The USGS says there are millions of earthquakes every year. Most are really tiny. You don't feel them. But even still, 15 times a year on average, there's a 7.0 or greater. It happens all the time. It's been going on forever. The same goes for famines. The same goes for false teachers. The same goes for persecution. This is just what's been going on forever for all of human history since the beginning. And that would make what Jesus says here rather redundant and trite if he's just telling the disciples to expect business as usual before the end. No, but instead, there's, there's a unique flavor to what he here describes. True, these phenomena might not be new, but in this time that he describes, they come with a distinct and a greater intensity. And this is all confirmed by a helpful analogy that Jesus gives talking about this time in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, After that, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The Greek word is odin. It signifies the pain of labor before childbirth. And all the moms in the house, you know what he's talking about all too well. And what do we learn from this analogy he gives of labor? In what way is this, all this destruction in this future time period, in what way is that likened to a woman going through childbirth? Well, I remember witnessing labor. I didn't go through labor, but I witnessed my wife's labor three years ago with the birth of our daughter. And for one, when labor begins, you know it. It's not a mistake usually. I mean, the contractions start at regular intervals. The pain begins. 
and you, you know something has changed. You're in a distinct time. Also, as that time goes on, the pain intensifies. It only gets worse. The closer you get to the delivery, the more it magnifies. And there's no turning back. It's a, it's a one-way train. When it starts, it's going to end with a baby, one way or another. But before that time comes, there's going to be a lot more pain. And the latter portion, near the very end, active labor, they call it, I've been told it gets so intense that it makes the beginning portion look like a massage. So I'm told. I don't really know, but that's what I'm told. But the pain is at its very worst right at the end. But then delivery comes and there's a profound joy after that. This is actually a very fitting analogy for the time of tribulation that Jesus describes. Once the tribulation begins, you, you know it. The pain is real. And it only gets worse. It's, it's unmistakable. As time goes on, the calamities get more and more intense. And by the end, it's so bad you think none would survive. And none would if God delayed. But then the end comes. And like labor, once this starts, it only ends one way. Jesus comes back. And when he comes, there is in that moment a profound joy for those who know him. All this goes to say in verses 5 through 13, Jesus, he's describing early labor in this future time period. This is how it begins. This is the beginning of the birth pangs. And it's meant to have some shock value because we already read these verses and they already sound pretty bad. But actually, this is the small stuff. This is just how it begins. That's meant to, to throw you back. And as the tribulation continues, especially into the second half, which he describes starting in verse 14, that's when things get really, really bad. We should look at that next time. But for now, though, he begins by telling the disciples what it's going to look like when this time period begins. This is the beginning of the birth pangs, the beginning of the end. All right, well, now, all that being said, you've got this, this thing framed, this chapter framed up. You understand what Jesus is talking about here. And now we want to sort through the details of these verses to get a fuller picture of this, this future time. And specifically, Jesus gives here seven signs of the beginning of the end. That's one way of putting it. Seven signs of the beginning of the end. These are a series of calamities that befall the earth in a future time of tribulation that culminates with the return of Christ. We want to start to look at these, each one of these now. Understand what, what is to come. Seven signs of the beginning of the end. Number one is this, false Christs. False Christs or false messiahs. It starts in verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Jesus begins his long answer to the disciples' questions with the warning. He says, watch out. Beware. And see to it that no one misleads you. Why? Because in that time, near the end, many will come in his name, seeking to mislead people. And the time near the end will be one of widespread deception. False teachers will abound. There's always been false teachers since the beginning. But in that future time, Jesus says there will also be false Christs. Remember the word Christ is just Greek for the word Messiah. These are people who claim to be the Messiah. They come in his name. They say, I am he. They're claiming to be the Messiah. They're claiming to be Jesus. Come back. 
And people, some people will be deceived enough to believe them and to go after them in this future time. Throughout history, there's been a handful of men, a scattering of men who've claimed to be the Messiah. The first one after Jesus was a man named Simon Bar Kokhba in the second century. More recently, there's Sun Myung Moon from Korea, the creator of the Unification Church, claimed to be the Messiah. But what makes the situation Jesus describes so unique, though, is that he says many, not a few, but many will come in his name claiming to be Jesus come back. And he says many, not a few, but many will be misled and will go after them, will actually buy it. And to us, we think, how, how could that be? How could so many people be duped into some crazy guy who says, I am Jesus, come back? But you have to remember, the tribulation begins with the church being removed from the earth in the rapture. Also, the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit is taken away. And so, as a result, deception flourishes. False teachers in false churches have a heyday, surely taking advantage of the world's instability. Satan's influence will be unchecked. It's really no wonder that so many will rise up claiming to be Jesus in order to gain a following, and people will buy it. People will believe them. But Jesus says, watch out for such false Christs. Do not be misled by them. Do not go after them. When Jesus really returns, it will be unmistakable. You will know it. But he says, beware of that future time because it will be one of unmatched deception. As a quick side note, is it any wonder that this time also gives rise to the greatest deceiver ever, the greatest false Christ, figure we call the Antichrist? We'll study this figure more next time in the passage for next week. But the whole world, apart from God's elect, will be given over and held under his sway. For now, simply understand that a drastic rise in false messiahs, it's one sign that marks the beginning of the end. Sign number two, a second sign he gives, is war. War, verse 7. It says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. As we said before, wars do not signal that the end is here. Human history has known nothing but war since the beginning. However, unprecedented conflict on a truly global scale sets apart this future tribulation time period. Jesus said in Luke 29, the end does not follow immediately. It doesn't happen right away. But when you see war on this scale, it's not far. It's not far behind. The book of Revelation tells us that the tribulation begins with a short time of peace under the dictatorship of the Antichrist, but it quickly changes into a worldwide war. You know, the earth has never truly seen a world war. Even during World War I and II, there were dozens and dozens of nations that totally sat out. They had no part at all. But the tribulation will be a time of truly global war and conflict. It sounds frightening, and that is frightening. Nothing steals your peace, literally, like war. Just imagine the uncertainty, the dread, the terror, living every day, fearing attack, fearing some missile strikes, whatever. But he says, for God's people who come to call on him during that time, he says, do not be frightened. 
in the text. And you wonder, how, how could that be? How could you not be frightened at a time like that? Well, the only answer is by trusting in God and hoping in God. I mean, in this passage, Jesus is here telling us the end before the beginning. Doesn't that kind of lead you to believe that God is in control of all this? God is working out his plans and his purposes for the world, for the nations, and he's in control. The tribulation, if there's any of our time, it feels like total anarchy. Like there's, there's no control, it's out of control, but God is in control. He's not surprised by this. He's not caught off guard. He's in fact planned for this. It all goes according to his sovereign plan. Jesus says these things must take place. God is working out his plan of redemption for the nations, his plan for the world. And just remember that in the end, he will surely judge all evil and rescue the righteous and right all wrongs. And believers of all ages need to remember that and count on that, especially then. Well, sign number three. Natural disasters. Number three, natural disasters. Continuing in verse 8, he says there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. This is when things really ramp up and get bad during this time. And we, we, we know this. We get this. We are very familiar with the destructive power of earthquakes. Remember back in 2004, there's an earthquake in the Indian Ocean. is a 9.1 triggered a tsunami and killed 250,000 people. Five years ago, 2010, earthquake in Haiti. It was only a 7.0, but it killed 150,000 people. So we, we get this. Now just imagine, what if there were 100 earthquakes just like that in a month? Or what if there was a 10.0? I don't know. I mean, we, we get this, so that would be devastation. We can foresee this and we can, we can understand the global turmoil. I mean, that the global market would crash, the food chain would just fail. Whenever there's a, a national disaster like Katrina, it takes the whole nation to rally together and send them support so that they don't starve to death because the food chain shuts down. What if there's a disaster in 50 cities at the same time? Where's the support going to come from? It will be chaos and many will perish. And that is the picture of the tribulation. Jesus also says there will be famines. That's not surprising. The food chain will shut down. That happens with local disasters even. This will be a global disaster. Food will grow scarce and nothing brings out total anarchy in a society than the scarcity of food. That's when it gets bad. It's kind of funny. You see all these TV shows about preppers? These guys go to great lengths and extremes to prepare for natural disasters, which is fine, like on a local level, sure, but just to be clear, there's no prepping for this. There's no prepping for the tribulation. You, you, you won't survive. It just takes one little earthquake and your bunker is crushed. And there's nothing you can do to prepare for this time. That's the picture. This is, this is serious. No one is safe apart from God's elect make matters worse in the parallel Luke chapter 21 Jesus also says there will be fan, or rather disease during this time we also get this we just saw an Ebola outbreak I mean just that, and that was a small one just picture a, an extreme one it adds a whole new level of terror and there's more again these phenomena they're not new we're getting the picture that during this special time they all come together like never before and there's a greater intensity to these to these disasters. Lots and lots of people will perish. 
as Jesus says. But this is only the beginning. Remember, this is just the beginning of the birth pangs. It's just getting started. It gets much worse. For now, though, sign number four, a fourth sign that the end is beginning, this time period is beginning, is persecution. Persecution, verse 9. He says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The book of Revelation tells us that many people will come to a genuine salvation during this tribulation time perhaps right after and maybe even in response to the rapture. But these new converts around the world will quickly pay the full price for their newfound faith in Christ in the form of persecution. At the local level, at the family level, at the government level, they will be persecuted. They will be made to pay for their new faith in Christ. God will be doing a great work in Israel during this time. We'll see that later, but among Jews and and Gentiles, any believer will be persecuted. In Matthew, the parallel, Jesus says, during this time, lawlessness will be increased, and so people's love will grow cold. In other words, don't expect justice and fairness in this time. Don't expect governors and kings and rulers to do what is right. So it will be a total time of moral abandonment where right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right to the extreme And that spells real bad news for God's people because the world will unite in their hatred of God and of what is right, which their conscience screams out, and they'll take that out on God's people, and hence persecution. But even this is in God's plan. He even has a divine purpose for this persecution, for it serves as a testimony to the world, he says. And also in Luke 21, 13, Jesus says, this persecution will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. As believers are persecuted, even prosecuted for their faith, gives them an opportunity to take a stand and maybe make one last final confession of Christ and the magnificence of his name, maybe even unto death. But it's a testimony to the world. God never leaves the world without a witness. And in the tribulation, every believer will be called to witness. Along these lines, a fifth sign is worldwide evangelism. Worldwide evangelism. He says in the next verse, verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. In the parallel, Matthew 24, 14, he says, longer version, he says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Some missions organizations have taken this verse to mean that once we evangelize every last little tribe and people group, then Jesus will return. So it gives us a great incentive, like we've got to go out, we've got to reach every tribe, because once we do, then Jesus will return. And although it's very good, we should want to reach every tribe, tongue, and nation, understand Christ's return is not contingent on worldwide evangelism in this age. It's contingent on worldwide evangelism in the next stage, in the tribulation. This is a tribulation verse. And during that time, God will provide several global witnesses or testimonies of the gospel. For example, Revelation 7 tells us about 144,000 special people, special witnesses. They're sealed, they're protected from the wrath of that time, and they will testify of God to the world during that time. 
Revelation 11 tells us of two very special witnesses who are likewise protected for the three and a half years. And they too, they're seen by the whole world and they bear witness to the gospel and everyone hears it. Even in Revelation 14, it tells of a supernatural testimony. It pictures an angel in the heavens preaching the gospel to all the nations. It's like one last final appeal to turn to Christ before he returns in judgment. It's actually remarkable. Even though the tribulation is a time of unparalleled deception, it's also a time of unparalleled evangelism. The gospel goes out and every nation will be reached. Not everyone will believe. Satan's deception will be at its strongest. The gospel will not be hidden. And that is God's final grace to a world of rebellion and sin. Sadly, though, indeed, most will not believe during the tribulation time, their hearts already being so hardened against God and the gospel. Instead of heeding the testimony, they will hate the testimony, and they will turn that hatred toward those who give the testimony. And this leads to the sixth sign, and that is martyrdom. Martyrdom. Related, obviously, to persecution, but in distinction, this is martyrdom. Verse 11, he says, When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. At this point, This has to be the least surprising element of the tribulation now that we we get the character of it. If the world had its way, if evil was unchecked, if Satan was unrestrained, those in the world, they'd kill us in a heartbeat. They'd just get rid of us. Darkness hates the light. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate us. Jesus warned us, John 15, verse 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And these verses will be never more true than in the tribulation. The cost to follow Jesus will be real and it will be high. Jesus said in Mark 8.35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, he will save it. And in the tribulation, that will become literally true. And it's fitting, though, for us to consider even for today, would you take your faith in Christ to the grave? Or would you deny him in the face of death? Did you really deny yourself and pick up your cross when you said you were going to follow him, become a Christian? Were you serious about that? At the very least, those who come to faith in the tribulation, they will be tested. And it will become real clear who's real and who's not. Many will lose their lives in this manner, but by God's grace, through their genuine faith, they will gain eternity. But sadly, not everyone will. Sadly, in that time, many, when tested, will abandon the faith and deny Christ and turn against the faithful. This leads to the final sign in this passage, number seven. It is apostasy. Apostasy. The word means just the people falling away from the faith. Verse 13, he says, You will be hated by all because of my name, 
But the one who endures to the end, which not all will do, but he will be saved. It's not a guarantee that believers will be preserved through this time, all of them. Many will die, but eternally they'll be safe in the arms of God as we are. Remember, though they may kill the body, they can't harm the soul. If you're in Christ, you're, you're safe, you're good to go. Nothing they can do to steal your salvation. And these will be secure. But even today and especially then, not everyone has a true saving faith. Phony believers abound, especially in our culture, where still for now, there's not really a cost to being a Christian. It's easy to say you believe in Christ. No one's going to kill you for it. But what if following Jesus meant you're going to lose your job, you lose your house, lose everything you own, you'll be sent to a labor camp for the rest of your life? Would you still confess him as Lord and Savior, or would you deny him to save your skin? You see, when it gets real, it becomes real easy to tell who's genuine, who's fake. And sadly, in the tribulation, there will be a multitude of, of fakes. The parallel, Matthew 24, verse 10, Jesus said this, At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. They don't just fall away, they, they turn on those who don't fall away. Tribulation will be marked by mass apostasy, and so-called Christians the world over will deny Christ. In the face of that mounting persecution, they, they want to die for Jesus, so they abandon him, and a short while later, they're all given over to the religion of the Antichrist. The whole world will be held under his sway, except for God's elect. But the point is, if you don't get it already, this will be a time when Satan's deception will be at its peak and things are at their worst. Sounds bad, right? I mean, it, it is pretty bad. This is the time of God's wrath justly being poured out in a world of sin and evil. But remember, everything we've read this morning, all of this, just the beginning. This is all just how it begins. This is the beginning of the birth pangs. This is the first half. I want to show you something. We'll finish with this, but turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 4 or 5 gives us this heavenly throne room scene. We see Jesus, the Lamb, and he approaches the Father and he takes this scroll. The scroll is like the title deed to the earth. And Jesus, he's finally getting ready to reclaim the earth and to reign and rule on the earth. But before Jesus returns, he first pours out judgment on the earth. And that judgment is the seven-year tribulation time. These judgments come in many waves. We're familiar with the bowl judgments, the bowls of wrath, the trumpets. But it starts with something that's called the seven seal judgments. And picture a scroll, it's rolled up and it's sealed with seven wax seals. Jesus takes a scroll and he's breaking the seals, he's opening it, and he's going to reclaim the earth. It's the title deed to the earth, you could say. But every time he breaks one of these seals, judgment falls on the earth. I want to read through these judgments now. It's in Revelation 6. They're the seven seal judgments. And this is how it begins. This is how that tribulation time begins. And I want you to notice how everything it says here in Revelation 6 actually exactly parallels what we just studied in the Olivet Discourse. It's the same thing. It actually expands what we hear from Jesus in his short version in the Olivet Discourse. Well, let's read this real quick. We'll do, quick, we'll do this quickly, but Revelation 6, it says verse 1, 
Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying it as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, I really have no time to give you exposition or explanation. I'm just going to tell you the first rider on the horse represents the Antichrist. He comes on a white horse, much like Jesus does, a white horse. And he initially conquers in peace, but he's a false Christ, and his is a false peace. Verse 3. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and another a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. After this short, phony peace comes what? A war. This is war, just like Jesus said. Verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked to behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, what that, that's basically a simple way of depicting famine. What that means is, you know, imagine spending $80, roughly a day's wage, to buy four slices of bread. That's what he's saying. It's, it's famine. That's how bad it gets. That's a scarcity of food. Just like Jesus said, famine. Verse 7. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four, fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was falling with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is a more natural disasters that follow. Again, there's famine, there's disease, there's more war, there's even wild beasts. Altogether, killing one-fourth of the population. Again, this is just the beginning, but one-fourth dies during this time. Verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And what's this? It's persecution and more specifically, it's martyrdom. The fifth seal is martyrdom. Countless saints are killed throughout this time until the number is complete. They're safe though. They're safe and secure in the arms of God. They're transported to heaven. But nonetheless, it will be bad for those who come to faith in Christ during that time on earth. And lastly, verse 12, we'll finish it out. Verse 12, he says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Last comes total planetary upheaval and destruction through a massive earthquake. What looks like also volcanic triggers, just like the tectonic things are moving around and it's, it's bad, it's massive. Just like Jesus said, by the way, in the Olivet Discourse. And at this time, many more perish. And it gets so bad. Amazingly, though, the people living there, they know this is God. This is God's judgment. But the satanic deception is so great that they still don't repent. They still don't repent. But again, the point is, this is only the beginning. This is just how it starts. This is only the first six seals. The seventh seal actually opens up to what's called the seven trumpet judgments. And those are all even worse. Then the last one of those, the seventh trumpet judgment, itself opens up to seven bowl judgments, bowls of wrath being poured out. And each one of those is really really bad and that's very much near the end and then Jesus returns but the point is it it's bad and it gets only worse but we've studied the beginning of the birth pangs and although this is the day of the fierce wrath of God and of the lamb God is righteous God is not mocked and although he has allowed Satan in this world to persist in the rebellion for quite some time his patience and his mercy will not last forever There will come a day when God will righteously judge all those who do evil and who reject the gospel. The picture that Jesus gives in our passage already is that God's wrath is real. God's wrath is fierce. God's wrath is inescapable. There's no hiding from this. There's no escaping this. Where are you going to go? You're calling on a mountain to fall on you, to hide you. It's not going to work. The entire world will be consumed and all those who live in it. There's more to say about this future time. We will do that next week. But already, I'll say this, what we've learned this morning should already have a sobering effect on you. Because listen, you might die years before this takes place. You you might not live to see this. And surely if you're a believer, you won't. But look, it might happen another thousand years. We don't know. But that doesn't mean you will then escape God's wrath. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. It doesn't matter how you go. Judgment comes after that. And certain doom is the result because we're all sinners. We've all partaken in that rebellion and that evil against God who is perfect, who's without fault. God's judgment is just and it will fall on every single one of us, myself included, except for those who take and find God's mercy, his offer of forgiveness, new life, new birth. It is found in his son, the lamb, the one who first came to shed his blood to save you, to forgive you. 
And that's, that's our hope. That's, that's the gospel, which will be preached during that time and even now, that you must take hold of by faith. Take hold of Christ. Count on him as your Lord and Savior. Understand and see him as a Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and your rebellion, that you might be forgiven and cleansed and washed and totally made new, that you would be saved. Saved from what? You ever ask that? Saved from what? From the wrath to come. This is what you must do. Cry out and appeal to him. And setting the bad times to come, you get a picture of God's wrath. And you don't have to live to see the tribulation to, to find God's wrath. It will come upon all those who die without Christ. And that should have a sobering effect. Because we could die at any moment. And if you don't know Christ, then you will see wrath. So get right with God now. The offer of the gospel stands, but not forever. Today is the day of salvation. So turn to Christ. Exalt him. Follow him. Trust him. Be saved by him. So that you might be among those who call out wanting him to return. Appealing to him to return. Looking forward to his blessed appearance. And not among those who are calling out for the rocks and the mountains to hide them from the fierce wrath of the Lamb. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And that's today. That's today. Apart from this, we'll come back next week and we will see, sadly, how much worse things must get before Jesus comes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven and the Lamb, we appeal to you this morning, considering all that we've heard about the fierce wrath to come. What can we say other than it, it is just, you do no wrong, This world has been lost in a vast rebellion, a sin, evil given over to the ruler of this world, Satan. And although you work to redeem, Lord, you have patiently allowed this to take place. But it is our joy, our longing to see Christ reign, to see all wrong made right. This this world is full of sin and wickedness and evil, and and sometimes the wicked prosper, and it's not right. But we know you have a plan for your ultimate glory and even for our good. And that plan will culminate with what we've read and studied this morning. That there will be a day of reckoning, that none will escape. This life, the next, there will be reckoning for all. And all those who persist in sin and reject the gospel will be judged. And that is a righteous judgment. You will fulfill all righteousness. You're a holy God and we thank you for that. We thank you for upholding what is right and we look forward to that day. And at the same time though, you're God of such mercy. The mercy persists today and even in that time there will be mercy that in Christ we can be saved from the wrath to come. I pray we take that seriously and even though some here who have not done that would, would do that now, would cry out to you as a sinner with nothing to offer, nothing but the blood of Jesus can we, can we bring appealing for mercy through the Lamb, and and that will be found to save us from that wrath. It's a frightening thing to study. We are thankful that we won't ever see it. You have saved us from wrath. We will never see that, but at the same time, may this also give us a greater desire to reach the nations, to reach our loved ones, that they too might be saved, because the time is always near. We don't know when this will happen, but the time is always near. We may take this seriously and take this charge to go out 
and, and reach others with the glorious gospel of the Lamb. Well, we always thank you for our time in the Word. May it profit us as we leave. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.